Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, hello. It's so good to be back with you again. And I just want to say thank you so much to Soren, to Courtney, and to Ashley for the beautiful words that they brought uh, on our series in the book of Jeremiah, and just the way that they each so thoughtfully and poignantly reflected the beauty of the grace of Jesus. If you see them in person or you have their numbers, send them a text saying thank you. What a gift it is for us as a community to have this wide variety of communicators. And I, I don't know about you, but I was really blessed by what they had to say. Well, it's, it's so good to be back sitting in this chair Uh, teaching and and getting a chance to open up the scriptures together. And we've arrived at the last Sunday in Lent, Palm Sunday. And today, as we begin to, to walk this journey of Holy Week, to walk the footsteps of Jesus as he stares down the cross, as he goes to the grave, as he goes to the empty tomb, I want to start with a question to frame our week together, to begin to say, what might God be doing amongst us? And so, simple question, what do you expect from God? Now, it's possible that you haven't given much thought to that question, or at least not really put the answer into words. But if God were applying to be your God, what would the job requirements be? He'd say, uh, well, hey there, Uh, I hear you're interested in having a God, and uh, I'd like to apply for the job. Okay, listen, I I may or may not have envisioned some hypothetical conversations where God was interviewing to be our God, but I will spare you those because I am your pastor and I love you. Uh, But think about it. What do you require of God? Of course, we know at some level that's not really how it works, right? For instance, when God saves the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and it's not really a conversation, God doesn't say, okay, what do you want me to do for you? No, he says, look, this is what I've done for you. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Here's what I expect of you. Here's the kind of people you are to be in order to reflect the beauty of my holiness in the world. Micah 6.8 says, what does the Lord require of you? And it says to walk with God, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. But as we're going to see today, the people that welcome Jesus, that herald his ride into Jerusalem, have lofty expectations for Jesus. They want something very specific from him, but it's not just that they want something. It's not just that they're looking for merely a transactional relationship. No, they have a hope. They are putting words to a hope that they feel deeply in their bones. So the question I think that we have to wrestle with on this Palm Sunday is this. First of all, is it wrong to have expectations of God? And the second question follows from it. What do we do when our expectations, the way that we have narrated and painted God, are disappointed? Let's look at the story as Mark writes in Mark chapter 11. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, 
and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and they found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. So let's set the scene here. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for what will turn out to be the last week of his life. We celebrate Palm Sunday as the beginning of Holy Week, the beginning of the week and the events that lead up to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. When we remember what's commonly referred to as Jesus' passion, his journey, and Jesus riding on a donkey or a colt into Jerusalem presses against all sorts of social conventions. It was custom for the people to not ride into Jerusalem, but to walk. Josephus even records the great conqueror, Alexander the Great, humbling himself upon entering Jerusalem, dismounting from his horse, and walking into the city. But Jesus, very intentionally, stops outside the city to make preparations to approach the city in this very specific way. Throughout Mark's gospel, the way that Mark tells the story, Jesus has been very adamant about keeping his identity a secret. He will often heal people and then immediately in the same breath tell them not to tell anybody else what he did for them. But here, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and approaches the cross, the revelation of who Jesus is, of his deepest identity, is accelerating. Jesus is being less coy, less secretive about his identity. Mark wants to make the point that Jesus is fully revealed, fully and finally, in his suffering love for the world. Jesus can only be seen fully on the cross. Matthew, as he records this Palm Sunday, records the instance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, saying that he does it in this way in order to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice! Greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. There's this beautiful interplay happening in this scene. Jesus finally owning his identity, letting it be known, but look at the way that he's doing it. He's not doing it through domination, not through military scheming or fist-pounding speeches. No, Zechariah tells us he is righteous, victorious, and lowly. The news about Jesus has been spreading throughout the region. This man, this wonder worker, has been healing and teaching about the kingdom of God, and the people have begun to wonder, is this the king that they have been waiting on? You see, this scene with Jesus riding on the donkey evokes two stories from Israel's past that the people surrounding Jesus would have been familiar with and would have hoped from the very depths of their being that maybe these stories were being renewed in their day. In both stories involving King Solomon and King Jehu, the rightful king was anointed. Solomon was placed on King David's donkey as a sign of David, his father's endorsement of him as the rightful king. Jehu's path was covered with the cloaks of those loyal to him as a means of showing honor to the rightful king. And look at what happens here to Jesus in Mark chapter 11. It says in verse 7, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The people are hoping that Jesus is the king come in the line of David, like Solomon, David's son, who oversaw the greatest period of flourishing in the history of Israel, like Jehu before him. And do you know what the next thing in both of those stories, the stories about Solomon and the story about Jehu, do you know what they did after receiving their rightful recognition as king? They got to cracking skulls, like soprano style. They consolidated their reign. They got rid of any rivals. So here's the thing. Who are the rivals in Jesus' day? If Jesus is the kind of king that the people think that he is, then they're doing the math. They're saying the rivals to this throne are the Romans. And this is so important for us to keep in mind, especially as we traverse Holy Week. Jesus didn't just come speaking spiritual truths to people who couldn't quite understand what he was saying. Yes, Jesus came teaching about the kingdom of God, but he also enacted very important symbols You know, we think of symbols in our own day. You know, the Boston Tea Party was a symbolic act. Yes, just throwing tea into a harbor may seem like a a, a small way of rebelling, but it's saying to the imperial power that was over the colonies at that time, we are not going to put up with your taxation any longer. And Jesus' symbols often had this kind of resonance to them. Jesus would often narrate and talk about these important symbols in the life of the history of the people of Israel, but he would often apply a very unforeseen twist, a slight reinterpretation of the symbols or the action that was outside of the people's expectations and would begin to challenge their paradigms, which is what exactly what we have going on on Palm Sunday. Notice, What the people are doing, they're laying down their cloaks, laying down their palms, they're celebrating the arrival of Jesus because of what they expect Jesus to do for them. And when you juxtapose this with what will transpire at the end of Holy Week, on Friday, instead of laying down their cloaks, the people will demand that Jesus be stripped of his. Instead of laying down palms, they will flay his back with a whip of leather and nail him to a wooden cross. And instead of words of blessing and welcome, they will heap upon him words of cursing and derision. So what? What could happen? that would flip the script so drastically, so dramatically, and so quickly? Well, quite simply, Jesus showed them that he was not going to fulfill the expectations of the people. He was not going to be the kind of king that they thought they wanted, that they thought they needed. And this became most evident on the cross. Roman crosses were where failed messiahs, of which there were many, there were many people within the nation of Israel who tried to lead uprisings and rebellions. Jesus is presented to the people on Good Friday by Pilate, and he says, look, I've got this other guy, Barabbas, who himself was a usurper and a rebel leader. Which one would you choose, Jesus or Barabbas? And the people famously choose Barabbas. Failed messiahs were a common thing, in the uh, Israelite story, especially as it pertained to the Roman Empire. And Roman crosses were where failed messiahs went to die, where the Roman state reminded the Jewish people that their hopes for liberation would always be stamped out by the might of Rome. Rome used to display crucified Jews 
on the roads into towns, basically just saying, don't mess with Rome or this is what happens to you. Horrible reminders to the people. And for Jesus, he didn't even turn out to be the kind of Messiah who stirred up nationalistic zeal. You know, you see, one of the things that was common for these different failed messiahs was that they were trying to stir up their base. They were trying to say, we deserve to be this kind of people because we have these promises from God. Jesus doesn't do that. Rather, he enacts judgment on things like the temple. He, he re-narrates the history of Israel, inviting those who would seem like they were the least likely people to be welcomed at the table of the kingdom of God into the feast. You see, if we fast forward from Palm Sunday to Friday, in the eyes of the onlookers at Calvary, those that saw Jesus crucified, hanging there on a cross, Jesus is the worst kind of failed Messiah. He's both powerless to challenge Rome and he's blasphemous to the God of Israel. And he's cursed and killed mercilessly and painfully on a tree. The crowds were willing to lay down their cloaks to sing their songs of praise when Jesus appeared to be the kind of king that they wanted him to be. But when it became evident that he wasn't that kind of king, those same crowds who proclaimed blessing yelled, crucify him. And Ecclesia, we have to narrate ourselves into the position of the crowds as we go throughout Holy Week. We make a mistake if we don't hear our voice in the chorus of those, both with the misplaced expectations upon Jesus and those yelling, crucify him. We make a mistake if we don't see our hands as the one who nailed him to the cross. No, this story is not just about something that happened. It's about something that happens. And if we're honest, we've all had this experience, disillusionment, disappointment with God. We've expected God to do something or to give us the certain kind of life that we wanted and it hasn't happened. And things just don't always work out, right? Life is hard. And, and it gets even harder, I think, when we've grown up following God, expecting certain things to happen because we, with our lives, declare that we love God. We expect the desires of our heart to be met, and they, maybe at this point of our lives, for whatever reason, just haven't been. And here's the deal. The people welcoming Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, they had grabbed onto a distorted version of the promises given to Abraham and to David, and they, not unlike many in our own day, wrongly believed that the promises of God were centered on nationalist hopes of one nation, and they thought their, uh, the, the enemy, their Messiah, would confront was the Romans. But, but what we see through the events of Holy Week is they believed a smaller version of the story. And many of our disappointments with God stem from misplaced expectations. If God is inviting us into a relationship, think about your own friendships or your own relationship with people in your life, maybe your spouse or, or, or some of your dearest friends. Oftentimes, where the greatest hurt comes in is where we have placed an expectation upon somebody that they either never agreed to meet or that they can't meet. And there's not something all that different going on here. When we think God has promised things that he never promised us, this cannot help but create either disillusionment or resentment. And if we think that God has not held up his end of the bargain, we, we think sometimes that either it's God's fault or, or oftentimes we think it's our fault. 
that we didn't quite do every little thing right. And God is punishing us to show us that, that we didn't do every little thing according to his ways. And here's the thing. This doesn't just happen to those who have uh, faith in Jesus or some sort of religious faith. This happens to us as humans when we put our faith in anything smaller than Jesus, be it religious or secular. Author and columnist Lee Stein wrote an article in the New York Times called The Empty Religions of Instagram. As she reflects upon her own sort of dealings with the bottom of the well, Lee Stein writes, I was once one of those millennials who made politics her religion. I lasted three years as a feminist activist and organizer before I burned out in 2017. That's when I began to noticing how many wellness products and programs were marketed to women in pain and how the social media industry relies on keeping us outraged and engaged. It's no wonder we're seeking relief. Lee Stein is just talking about her own experience of dealing uh, with the end of the promises of politics to the end of the expectations of the well that she had dug and she found nothing but sand. She then goes on to say, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, for humility and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. Lee Stein is narrating something that is so common in our culture. This sense of placing our hopes and our expectations in something that can't possibly fulfill them. And the people in our story were willing to welcome Jesus on a path of honor, laying down their cloaks, saying, We are with you if, if you'll be the kind of king that we want. You see, we present God with a contract. We say, listen, here are the terms, but God responds to us with himself and with a covenant. We want God on our terms, and it's such a sobering question for us to ask, where are we doing that in our lives today? But, but here's the other side of the equation. And because I know so many of your stories, because I love so many of you so dearly, I, I think it's, it's so easy for me to preach a sermon that's basically like, God is bigger than your expectations, right? Full stop. That's easy, right? But of course the people have dreams. Of course they want a better tomorrow. Of course they have expectations. They have a story that they've told themselves. That's called hope. I think too often when we are confronted with the chasm between our own expectations of God and what God might be doing, the implicit message that we receive is that we shouldn't place any expectations upon God. That God can do whatever he wants. And many people think that's the end of the book of Job. That God undresses Job and says, who are you to talk to me? But that's not what's going on in those texts. In fact, God tells Job's friends, the ones who have been trying to excavate the reason for Job's suffering with their closed systems, God says to them that Job in all of his complaints is the one who has spoken correctly. And those who are locked into a rigid framework of the way God works in the world are those who don't quite get it. It can be true at one in the same breath that God is doing something within and beyond our misplaced expectations, our smaller hopes, our vain imaginings of what God might do for us. That all can be true. And in the same breath that that same God invites us to heap our hopes, our dreams, our burdens upon him. 
Notice what Jesus says in this passage as the crowds are showering him with praise and blessing. He says nothing. He doesn't stop them and say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You're going to hate me on Friday, I promise. He simply rides upon the path of their misplaced and small expectations. Ecclesia, perhaps God can do with all of our small expectations. Perhaps God can deal with our sense of misplaced priorities. The people here in our story in Mark 11 want political and physical liberation. And what they don't realize is, is that Jesus is going to make a way for that and for so, so much more. The Psalms, in many ways, form the bookends of Holy Week. The people greet Jesus with blessings from the Psalms. And one of Jesus' last words from the cross, as he's in the depth of his own suffering and anguish, he says, he quotes from Psalm 22, My God, why have you forsaken me? And if you've ever read the Psalms or spent any time with them, you know they can be a bit unsettling. At one, one moment, the heights of praise and adulation, and at another moment, the depths of despair and confusion. And it's worth asking the question, if the Bible, in some ways, helping form a life with God in us, what kind of life is it that includes things like the Psalms? And the answer, I think, is a full one. A life lived wholly before God. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, which we quoted earlier, says, Your king is coming to you. And Ecclesia, if you're broken, if you're disillusioned, if you're disappointed, or you're just done with it all because you feel like God never keeps any of his promises, Jesus is coming to you. Or if you feel great, you're like the crowds who welcome Jesus on that first Palm Sunday because you're thinking of all that Jesus is going to do for you. And you may find out sooner rather than later that those hopes are misplaced as well. Jesus is coming to you. Perhaps the message for us today is not that it's wrong to place expectations upon God or not even that it's wrong to be disillusioned. But I think that what God is saying to all of us is that no matter what, no matter the place of brokenness or despair, no matter how small our imaginations can be as we try to narrate Jesus to the world, Jesus is coming to us. C.S. Lewis, as he reflected upon the death of his beloved wife, he said, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. And friends, that's not just this ethereal, like Jesus is going to make it all okay. Jesus is poured out his spirit upon our world. He's poured his spirit into our hearts. Jesus really does surround us with his peace. Pastor Tim Keller was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he wrote a, 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 a bit about his journey in a beautiful article in The Atlantic. I, I encourage you to look it up. And he describes some of his own wrestlings with his misplaced expectations upon God. Tim Keller writes, One of the first things I learned was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Despite my rational, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality. 
Instead of acting on Dylan Thomas's advice to rage, rage against the dying of the light, I found myself thinking, what? No, I can't die. That happens to others, but not to me. When I said these outrageous words out loud, I realized this delusion had been the actual operating principle of my heart. Ecclesia, this is Tim Keller, the Bishop of New York, the Pope of much of modern evangelicalism. And he's saying, things are not going the way that I planned. And I realized in the midst of that, that my picture of God was distorted, my expectations misplaced. But you know what also he realizes? Is that his hope is too small. The resurrection for him, the idea that Jesus was going to put it all back together was a theory. And now, it was being immersed in something much more concrete. And Ecclesia, we should certainly hear, hear Palm Sunday as a corrective, a call to repent, a call to allow Jesus to shape our grasp of just exactly what it is that he promises us. But we should also hear it as an invitation that to every desolate and disillusioned place, to every failed endeavor, to every false hope, our King is coming to us. Our King is coming to us, moving towards us, lowly and victorious. He is our King, our Good Shepherd. He will bring the dawn of salvation into our lives. Yes and amen. But He will also be with us through every dark night of the soul, every valley of the shadow of death, when it seems like the dawn will never come our King is coming to us. And friends, I know that for so many of us, the sense of disillusionment with God, the sense of a, a lack of, of a concrete expression of the way that God has, is fulfilling His promises in your life has caused so much anguish. And I know that for so many of us, we need to hear the story of Jesus on Holy Week to see exactly what He's done for us anew. But as we embark upon this Holy Week journey, can I just declare this truth to you this morning? That your King is coming to you, lowly and victorious. That your King is coming to you. That He will never leave you or forsake you. That your King is coming to you, riding upon all your misplaced expectations, all of your small imaginations. Your King is coming to you. And He comes again and again. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.